Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. This guy doesn't like it when I call him a modern-day philosopher. I don't know if we're allowed to have any of those anymore. We call them comedians, but regardless, I've enjoyed his work for a long time. And what I especially enjoy, Malcolm, is the discerning choices you make now on where it is your curiosities lead you. Uh, because you could basically find yourself anywhere. But it seems to me with your choices that you're following your curiosity. So when you devote yourself in a six-part podcast series to the legacy of speed, and thank you for joining us, as always, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Why is it that you're following this particular fuse toward the explosion? I, you know, the whole series is based on, it's the story behind that iconic photograph of John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the victory stand in the 1968 Olympics. Uh, Tommy Smith won the 200 in a world record time. Uh, John Carlos was third. I remember that photograph as a kid, as I'm sure you do too. Um, and I always, you know, I was a big track and field fan at the time, but it was more than that. It was like, it somehow symbolized an entire era in the civil rights movement. And um, I never knew the story behind it. And, you know, I've gone my whole life with that image in my head without knowing what it meant. And so we had this opportunity to kind of dig into it. And it turns out, of course, that the story behind that photograph is completely fascinating and so weirdly relevant. I mean, it it's sort of, it's so contemporary in a certain sense. It was a hundred years ahead of its time, correct? Like it's not some of the things you've happened, uh, you've seen happen in America since then. Uh, you can go back to that photograph and do a lot of tracing of sports and roots yeah. and history and stimulate a whole lot of curiosities when you go searching for the facts of it, correct? Absolutely. I mean, just to give one small example, you can't understand Colin Kaepernick until you understand that photograph uh, from what the story behind that photograph in 68. That whole movement in the 60s with you know, with Muhammad Ali and with with athletes sort of taking the stage, it's really important to remember that there was a, you know, that was new, that was, that was radical. The idea that an athlete might have a kind of, uh, might use their platform to address something other than sports was more than a novelty in the 60s. It was, and it, it remains a kind of radically upsetting notion for some people, I mean, if you think of you know the if you want to if you want to trace where the hostility to Colin Kaepernick comes from, just go back to 1968 on that victory stand. It's crazy to think, Malcolm, that America and I don't know what your viewpoint is on the last 10 years of American history, but the way that we are doomed to repeat all of the things in American history very forgetfully through generations. There are a million things I want to talk uh, to you about. Uh, this podcast series being one of them. But how do you experience? the last, I don't know, month of normalization somehow, of rinse-repeat, Uvalde, Texas happens, 
we argue and yell about gun control, and the next thing you know, there are people all over television, still bought and paid for by the NRA on television, mm -hmm. making arguments on behalf of why it's slightly more okay that the slaughtering of children in schools happens in America than anywhere else in the world by a landslide margin. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because that question is really the same question that we were addressing in this series, which is that one of the rem remarkable and depressing things about um, arguments in American life is how little progress we make. You know, you when I said that the story of of behind those guys on the victory stand, it seemed very contemporary. What I'm saying is we're still we're still going over the same ground today that we went over in 1968. With gun control, the same thing happens. I mean, this is exactly the same conversation we had about over Sandy Hook, which is in turn exactly the same conversation we had after Columbine. I mean, they, they, we don't make any progress or maybe we make baby steps and we can finally, you know, I thought someone tweeted that after Sandy Hook, if the prospect of someone walking into an elementary school and slaughtering kids was not sufficient to change the public conversation on uh, gun control, then nothing would. And I sort of, I hate to be this pessimistic, but I kind of think maybe that's right. You know, like if, if these repeated events don't change the conversation, what, what, what could possibly, what possible, uh, can you imagine any scenario that would be more likely to change someone's mind than just, than what just happened? Yes. Just black people having the dangerous, the most dangerous of guns. Watch how fast legislation in this country changes. If, if this was 50 black people mass shootings every weekend because they'd had enough, I believe yeah. that that would change the legislation more than slaughtered children. Yeah, yeah, I think sadly you're right. Where do you arrive with the weariness of the conversation? Well, you know, I'm by nature an optimist, so I do look for. I always managed to, I've always managed to see a silver lining in various, uh, you know, <laughs> even in the, under the bleakest of circumstances. Um, I will say this. Do you mind if I pull it back to Legacy of Speed? Of course, the, please. Like, I, I want to talk to you about Legacy of Speed. You're, we're having you on to talk about Legacy of Speed because Good. I do want, I, yeah. I'm interested in where your curiosities lead you. So one of the things I, that's amazing about this story is, you, and it relates to your question, about finding silver linings. We have to remember that 1968 is one of the bleakest years of recent American history. We've just gone through the riots of 67 when I think there were over 200 race riots in the summer of 1967. I mean, it was, and then we're in the heart, we're in the worst part of the Vietnam War. I mean, the country just seems like it's coming apart at the seams. And in the middle of that three, you know, 20, 20 year old, African-American sprinters from one university, San Jose State, decide they want to do something that no one's, no athlete has ever done before, which was to take, to basically command the stage at the biggest sporting event in the world and make a statement. And they knew what they were getting into. I mean, this was coming on the heels, as I said, of racial division was almost, you know, never greater than in, in or at least the kind of warfare over race than in the late 60s. And here are these guys who they don't have any money. All they have is the fact that they are an they are amazing athletes who will have a moment of glory in the Olympics, which will then after that, you're done. Right. And they take that at enormous risk to themselves and they stand up and they make this very simple, iconic gesture, which we are still talking about today. And I just think it's a kind of when I when I look for silver linings, 
know, you can get carried away with all the depressing stuff, but you have to remember there are still individuals who are capable of acts of real courage. And they always, I always think those individuals win the day. We're not 50 years later talking about the haters in 68. We're talking about the guys who made that statement on the victory stand, right? We're talking about the Tommy Smith and John Carlos. So that makes me think as well, history tends to be kindest to the people who are on the right side. Where does hope fail for the optimist in you when you realize, or I don't know how you define it, since 1968, not as much progress has been made as you would think? Yeah. Well, the other thing I would say is that, you know, maybe this, maybe the, the biggest lesson of all of this is that real change is just takes a lot longer than, than any of us anticipate. Um, and I think that's probably true in all areas. Like I was chatting, this is a random example, but I was chatting some guy who uh, works in books for Visa. And he was talking about the way individuals use their money and interact with the banking system. He said, you have to understand, people change their habits when it comes to this at a glacial pace. It does not happen overnight. You can give them the shiniest new technology and it'll take forever to be adopted. We're just slow. And, you know, think about how long, to use a sports example, how long did it take the NBA to figure out the value of the three-point shot? It took a generation, right? Like Ray Allen should have been shooting twenty times a game, and he he wasn't. Like, it's it one didn't... of the it's one of the most fascinating things to to I think that for decades in the sport they were actively trying to get the least efficient shot that had the least value that had the most yeah. impediments at the rim because they had not figured that Jamal Crawford is a Hall of Famer. They didn't understand. Let him shoot 30 times a game. It's much more valuable from out there. That's amazing. As a market inefficiency, it's almost inexplicable yeah. in what's supposed to be a competitive meritocracy that everybody was playing wrong. Yeah, but it's not that the NBA is full of dumb people. It's the fact that the NBA is full of human beings. And I think human beings in whatever setting we're in take a long time to put together, to kind of connect the dots. And that's what we're seeing with another, ver a much more tragic version of it is what we're seeing with, with gun control. But um, we're also seeing it in, in this question of what role should athletes play in society? It's, it takes a long time to warm up to the idea that for many people, that someone by virtue of being a great athlete should be allowed to use that platform to advance a larger social agenda. I don't want to um, be cynical uh, to your optimism, but the change did happen awfully fast in basketball once they realized, all of them, that there was money and inefficient value, and they can compete over that money. And as it regards, change with guns is slower when it's slaughtered children, Malcolm. Like, yeah. when it's money... Yeah. We the because the change happened fast. You say slow in basketball, but no, the sport you're watching now does in no way resemble the one that you grew up with. Like it happened pretty fast when it started to happen. Yeah, yeah. There's also, I mean, it's funny in the context of all of this. One of the people who looms large in the in the story of 1968 is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, because you know he makes a choice. the The big choice facing the athletes before the 68 games was whether they should go and protest or boycott, stay home. Kareem stays home and Tommy Smith and John Carlos and the rest go. And I totally, you know, I have enormous amount of respect for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, but what they're doing in having that conversation is of, should we stay or should we go, is they are bringing a kind of 
level of sophistication and intelligence to the question that wasn't there before. And I feel like we got, there's a whole generation of athletes of uh, that from that era who change, who permanently changed the conversation, who, you know, you can't look at Kareem in those, although I disagree with Kareem's decision to stay home, but nonetheless, you can't listen to Kareem in the sixties and not realize, oh, this is an extraordinarily intelligent young man who, when he speaks up, ought, we ought to listen to him. And he takes that intelligence into the NBA. And I feel like that cluster of athletes in that era raised the standard of conversation. And they make it easier, much easier for us to listen to the Steve Kerrs and the Steph Currys and the, you know, a generation later. But basketball got lucky. Um, in other words, it, in that respect, just as track got lucky with Carlos and Tommy Smith, um, I, d I don't see the same pattern in other sports, to be honest. I can't believe, and I imagine that you had have a perspective on this, I can't believe how it is that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 1968 civil rights activist, how weary he must feel looking at everything that's happening in 2022 oh, yeah. to have been fighting at the forefront of this for 50 years and see how just, I mean, can you imagine what it is yeah. for him to look at America and be like, really? Still? Still? Yeah. 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 No, I mean... But that's to my point, like maybe we should be measuring these these social changes in lifetimes, not in decades. I mean, I think that's the only way to kind of wrap my mind around it. Have you been following in sports the whole live golf thing and blood money and the Saudis and this new league and <laughs> Phil? It's unbelievable, Malcolm, what has happened during the pandemic with the fast forwarding of the greed that has laid bare, you know, sports. They'll do anything like no matter yeah, how if you want, it if is. you want Phil Mickelson to be your moral ambassador, you've got a problem. I, I think Phil, <laughs> everything about Phil, Phil Mickelson. He's like, it's the most, he's one of the most mind blowing sports. The, the gambling debts, like, is that a real number that he lost $40 million? Like just everything about that is like, how do you, Dan, how do you lose $40 million in gambling? Like, I can't even wrap my, it's just like, it's on a, golf is on a whole, there's a whole nother thing going on there that I don't understand. But, um, and it's sort of, you know, if I would be upset if I thought that the PGA was itself some kind of, paragon of moral virtue i let them fight it out is all i have to say do you find yourself with a lot of daily conundrums as it regards not just sports but just moral decisions you have to make every day because we're compromised by commerce at every turn whether it's china saudi arabia and you can't get in your car without having made 10 choices in the morning that probably uh, would have fallen on the wrong side of your moral compass if you were doing if you're finding it every every hypocrisy well i think the best you could hope for is that you 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 do your best in the areas that matter most to you. I think that's the you can't solve you can't solve every issue all at once, right? You've got to kind of pick your pick your battles. Um, you know the the when 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 Tommy Smith raises his fist on the victory stand, he's doing something very specific. Um, he's simply making this statement about what sports is. He, he knows he's not solving the civil rights problem. He knows he's not changing the lives of black people around the United States. What he is saying though, is that the notion that sports can exist outside of politics is an illusion, a dangerous illusion. And it's time we ended that. And time accepted the fact that sports participates in the world that it's 
a part of. It doesn't, it's not separate from it. And he's so, once you understand that that is what those guys were trying to do, then we can say they did something powerful and important and that's all to the good. You can't ask them to solve the entire issue. And so I think if you, if you look at kind of social progress as the accumulation of small gestures, then I think you, I think, get a clearer sense of how we can, how we can move forward. You add Rosa Parks to Tommy Smith, to John Lewis, to, you know, you keep at, and when at the end of the day, maybe something totals, um, totals up to something powerful and important. Um, you know, even I think of like Steve Kerr's press conference after, after that shooting. And he's been, you know, he's a number of these over the years. That's another one of those little steps, right? When a guy like Steve Kerr, he has an ability to reach people who wouldn't normally be listening to that perspective. And when he, you know, when he takes the focus off his sport and his obligation as a coach to speak to something greater, that's really like that will wake people up. And that's another one of those small gestures I think we'll, we'll remember um, fondly. His six-part podcast series entitled Legacy of Speed launched last week on June 14th. Malcolm Gladwell with us here. You can check that out. I can assure you that it's good because whenever it is that he and his team try to attack the details on something, they give you a tapestry of history and you learn stuff. Uh, how stimulated were you by this subject matter? Because obviously it's sports and politics and race and the legacy of speed, but you are choosing in the legacy of speed to seize on the uh, political moment of 68 in our conversation. It goes back well beyond that. Oh, yeah. So, well, the story is really fascinating for a number of reasons, because one of the things I didn't realize is that there were, you know, the three greatest sprinters in the world in 1968 were Tommy Smith, John Carlos and Lee Evans. Smith and Evans were both world record holders, both won golds in Mexico City. They all went to the same school, San Jose State. They were all coached by the same guy, this guy named Bud Winter. And Bud Winter is, he is, so you have in Southern California at that time, you got John Wooden, who's revolutionizing basketball uh, at the college level. Bud Winter is as important a coach as John Wooden, maybe even more important. He completely revolutionizes how people think about what it means to be a, uh, a sprinter. Um, so he has, you have this group of these athletes who are under the direction of this brilliant coach are reinventing sprinting. And then along comes Harry Edwards. Harry Edwards is another member of the San Jose State track team. He's on the same group. So Harry Edwards, who has gone on to be the most important figure in kind of bringing politics into sport the guy who the famed who, soci he's a sociologist, sociologist he's a professor he is a he's a yeah. landmark pioneer in talking about sports and politics and uh, uh, what you can make the argument advisor. he's the greatest voice or one of the, the strongest voice. voices yeah he's on the same team so you have in this little commuter school in san jose you have the greatest collection of running talent in the world and another guy, Harry Edwards, who's going to spend the next 50 years leading the conversation about, they're all there at the same time, which is incredible to me. Like, there has, I would argue there has never been a collection of athletic talent at any school at any time that is the equal of that. Two, and if you look at the totality of Bud Winter's career, he has, I've forgotten how many gold medal winners and world record holders. It's an astonishing number. It's a story that really hasn't been told, but 
Like, and say, what is San Jose State? No one talks about San Jose State as a superpower, but it was it was the it was the sup, the equal, if not the superior, of UCLA in those years. Um, so that's this this is hotbed in San Jose State of not just running a not just running accomplishment, but also kind of forward political thinking, and that that's the part of the story I had no clue. Never occurred to me that it all comes from one place, and that's the. And then they get to Mexico City, and it's nuts. The guy running the Olympic movement at that point is this guy Avery Brundage, who is literally a Bond villain. He's the he's this racist fascist. He didn't like black people. He didn't like women. He loves the Nazis. I mean, it's insane. He's the guy who, in 1936, goes to the to the uh, the Berlin Games and gives the AOK. He says, "Oh no, this is not going to be Hitler's kind of." propaganda show. It's totally fine. We should completely go and show up. And he runs the International Olympic Movement with an iron fist until he is confronted by the, those three athletes at Mexico City from San Jose State. And they're basically, they are, they are standing up to this guy who has, has ruled athletic, um, uh, world athletics with an iron fist for, at that point, uh, 40 years. And it's an incredible drama. It's so it's it's nuts. I mean, Brundage is going. Brundage boycotts the medal ceremony and tries to kick them out, kicks them out of the Olympic Village and denounces them. And like it's just like it's a, it is a. In addition to being a kind of important story, it's a, it is a fascinating and bizarre narrative. How much fun and why do you like so much sort of digging through the details of some place like the sands of history in 1968? Mm. Well, because you. You think you know, you know this, this is why we do journalism. You think you know something and then you dig just a little bit and you discover actually you don't know anything at all. You, you know, you're, it's, what I love about journalism is this is continually exposing my own ignorance. It, you know, I'm a track and field fan. That's my sport. You're, you're a and runner, I, you're a runner. You're, you're like, I'm a, I'm a runner. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I was, mean, this is personal to you in some ways, it's right? Totally personal to me. And I'm Dan, I'm the guy who challenged LeBron James to a mile race. LeBron still hasn't taken me up on it. But uh, the, um, yeah, this is like, so I did, you know, the, it was all this stuff, this is crazy stuff that has just kind of been remained hidden for, for the last 50 years. So it was, it was at every turn, there's some bizarre twist um, in, the, in the legacy of Speed Story. Why are you challenging LeBron James to a mile race? Well, because there's a big debate, you don't know this, there's a big debate among serious runners about how fast could LeBron run one mile, right? And I'm of the opinion that LeBron, so it's this question of are elite basketball players, are they anaerobic or aerobic athletes? In other words, are they sprinters or are they essentially distance runners? I'm of the opinion that they're distance runners and that LeBron would surprise you if he trained for one month to run a mile, I think his time would be would astonish everyone. Because I've seen you've seen, you know you've watched those workout videos where LeBron is running the full length of the court at top speed, dunking, running the full length, dunking, and he does that for what seems like forever. That is a that is an elite distance runner's workout. Only actually, it's harder. And if he can do that, you know, just the fact that he's two whatever what it is two forty six eight is an impediment, sure, but he must have a he must have a kind of aerobic motor that is the equal of, you know, some elite 
middle distance. So you challenge you challenge him because you want to lose, or you challenge him yeah. because you think you're going to win, or you challenge him because I you want him to break the four minute uh, mark because you've stirred I him competitively. Lose, I want to prove to the world that LeBron is a. An even greater and different kind of athlete you, you than we imagine. You believe that he would set the if he trained for a month, he would run the fastest mile ever run. No, no, no. He would beat <laughs> me. Full, no, he full would sprint. run. He would run. He would run the. Uh, he would run. I think LeBron could run a four forty mile, which for a six eight two forty guy is an astonishing accomplishment. Um, and I want. I want to show the world that you know it's different. Like I was talking to someone about this the other day. 50 years ago, 30 years ago, guys were smoking cigarettes in the locker room at halftime, right? It's a different sport in the 70s. Now, these guys are athletes on a level that is incomprehensible. And LeBron, if he put his mind to it, he could totally destroy me. I'm someone who's a serious, I'm, I am 5'9", 125. I am built like a distance runner, right? He could destroy me in the mile. I'm convinced does he not? Uh, does he even have to train to destroy you? Do you think you would destroy him well, if he didn't take? If he didn't train for a day? Uh, LeBron's on- tra- training. You know, he's training every day, and he's probably doing a lot of stuff that actually, re- as I said, resembles the kind of training that middle distance runners do. Um, that workout—it's a famous video. I'm sure, maybe you sure you've seen it. If you, you know what I'm talking about, he's running back and forth. Yeah, it's crazy. And dunking nobody each nobody end. seems to understand what kind of shape they're in. It's in ridiculous shape. It's I, ridiculous. The idea it's that ridiculous. I've seen John Amici, a guy who's 300 pounds, run on a treadmill at 10.0 uh, for an hour and step off it and not be breathing hard. Uh, people don't. People have no idea what kind of shape those human beings are in. They're sprinting all game. Someone told me the following story. I've told this before, but it's my favorite story. A guy I know who was on a college basketball team with Vernon Maxwell said that Max shows up one morning. He'd been, God knows where he'd been the night before. He's wearing basically street shoes and like long track pants. And he jumps on the track and he runs a, a, a sub two minute half mile. Now, that, what, is Matt, what, is, what is Maxwell? Six, five, probably 190. He's an, enor- an enormous guy. And that gives you, a, you know, that's a guy who's not training for it. That's a, that, is a, that is a superb time for a, for a real runner, let alone a guy whose guy who strength is basketball. Hold the phone. You're telling me, Dan, that John Amici, for an hour straight, was on a treadmill going 10 miles per hour? And only because the treadmill went only to 10.0. That is insane. Uh, Do you think it's it's insane, though, Malcolm? When you talk about the kind of shape NBA players are in, they're in in an absurd shape. They can, like, of course they can sprint for a long time. How could they not sprint for a long time? Yeah, they're in, they are, it it is, I was, you know, I I was convinced the Celtics were going to get have real trouble in the first couple of games because I looked at what they had been through in two seven-game series in a row, and I said they must be exhausted. Turns out they win the first game. They're not exhausted. Like it, it boggles the mind the kind of shape they're in. Like people have, but people have no idea, Malcolm. You're a runner. When you talk, you're you're a runner. You love sports. You follow curiosities. When we watch. NBA basketball. I say this all the time to people. First of all, you have no idea how far the three-point line actually is, but those are the highest form of human evolution species running around the court that I've ever seen athletically where I don't understand. Never mind that. What do you mean get back on defense after I've just sprinted up and back the way that and now I've got a guard Tatum? Get the hell out of here. Get away from me. Yeah. No, it's like I yeah, they're my admiration for them is is boundless. A lot has changed over the years. But you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? 
I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you make of the fight in and throughout college sports as the wild, wild west has arrived and players can be paid and players have power and the next thing you see is Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban cannibalizing each other because the structure of an unjust system is being shaken at its core by commerce? Well, I think it's uh, long overdue. And I think what we should simply do is, why, why do we have to have one college sports system? Why can't we have... Below a certain level, you do it the traditional way. It's an amateur sport. You kids play for four years. They are expected to have good grades. And then there's another tier where we say we just acknowledge the fact that this is a kind of semi-professional activity and the players ought to be rewarded for their for their abilities. Like you could have a kind of super league. Let the Alabamas and the Texases and the Penn States duke it out on one level and let everyone else go back to normal i think that's a that's how i would resolve this would you do me a favor just curious as a storyteller what are some of the things about your popular books that people do not know or might be surprised to learn uh the struggles or adversities that had to be overcome in the tipping point or whatever it is that you regard as uh as your most successful work well i guess one thing that people should be aware of is that just because you've written a book doesn't mean that you're you always, you still agree with the things you wrote, right? You're a human being, you evolve over time. Some of the things I wrote 20 years ago, I think are fine and great and interesting. Some of the things I think, I, I wouldn't say that today. I don't agree with that. I, my, I've, I know a lot more now. It's a kind of, you know, uh, books are, are static documents, but human beings are works in progress. And um, I'm actually gonna do a 25th anniversary of, uh, edition of my book, The Tipping Point. And I'm gonna I'm gonna rewrite a whole chunk of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of update it with the way I'm thinking in now, as opposed to that book was written in the year 2000. That, that's a that's a lifetime ago. 
where were you most wrong when you inspect some of that stuff? Because you uh, you put forth some philosophies. You and I have talked about some of this for, uh, before, right? The real, whatever this means, the real intellectuals of today will poke holes in your book. And they and you received a lot of jealousy as being someone, well, why does this guy get propped up? He writes books and he tells these simple stories. They're easy to understand. Come on. There's this cocktail napkin intellectualism. And all you were mm -hmm. doing is following your curiosities and being like, hey, I'm writing books. Isn't this fun? Wow, they're successful. That's great. And now you start getting dragged as a symbol. Well, he's smart, but he's not that smart. He gets a lot of yeah. things wrong. So what do you look back on and say, well, I was writing books. I was throwing out theorems. These were not destinations. These were never supposed to be. I am the world's greatest philosopher, and this is the final word on this subject. Yeah. I would, uh, like in Tipping Point, I was living in New York City at the time when the crime rate drops dramatically. You know, 2,000 murders a year to 200 murders a year. And that was what was obsessing me at the time. Now, I've returned to the subject of crime in at least three of my subsequent books. And now we're in a period where crime is inching up again. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to digging back into that and saying, okay, what has the experience of the last 20 years taught me about, uh, about this subject of why, why, do, why do crime rates go up and down in cities? I will clearly have a more sophisticated take than I did back in 2000 when the whole thing was new. I mean, people forget how weird it was to live in New York City in the 90s. I mean, within a space of three years, it went from one of the least safe cities in the world to one of the safest. And like, that was like what everyone was kind of trying to wrap their mind around. Now we have the benefit of a quarter century to kind of reflect on, on what exactly what happened. So that's a, an example of a thing where I, I'm quite prepared if I need to, to throw out that entire chapter and just write a new one from scratch. Is there a criticism that you were defensive about at the time, wherever it is, 2000, whenever the ascent is on your life is changing because the books are successful yeah. and now you're a symbol for something I'm guessing you never intended to be a symbol for. And is there anything in the books that you look back on now? And man, I was defensive about the criticism then, but 22 years later, eh, they were kind of right. They got me on a soft spot. Well, I don't spend a lot of time. I'm not a very defensive person. So I just take it for granted that some people are going to like, disagree with stuff um you just file, I think you file fine. it under learning right like this is it's public learning but just mistakes are uh, you know learning in disguise i think i have more as long as you think you have more fans and critics you're winning so if if it's 51 49 in favor of the fans i'm happy <laughs> i'll take it you know in a presidential election you get 51 percent. that's called a landslide so I'm sorry. I'll take it. That's I'll take my landslide. Oh, but that has to be a renewed perspective for you because this is the columnist life to be the polarizing guy who you didn't you didn't sign up for polarizing, did you? When you you well, signed up for academia, no? Yeah. I you know it's funny. I you know this legacy of speed story, for example, it's a story outside of the kind of very conventional ideological debates at the moment. So it's much more interesting to explore a story where I think that everyone who listens will have a clean shot at caring about the outcome. Um, so that, you know, I'm not as interested in, I don't like wading into these hard and fast, super divisive topics. I like going at things from the side, like in my new, new, new episode of revisionist history, new season of revisionist history, we have a bunch of episodes that just, I don't know whether they're right. They take a stand, but I don't know whether it's right or whether it's left or right or conservative or liberal. It's just, it's just intended to prod people into thinking differently. And that's the, that's the ground I like to occupy.
Tough question, a lot of terrain to cover, but in the episodes of Revisionist History, is there one above all others that you just regard as like, man, that is the one to me that is most stimulating, if not best, like or proudest, mm. or just one where you're like, I really think that I told, I, I changed my thinking on this. I learned things I was not, beyond all measure, I learned more than I thought I was going to learn. Well, it's funny. It changes every day, but I was thinking about the other day. There's one we did in season three, I think, called King of Tears, which is all about the saddest song of all time and was parenthetically about why it is that country songs can make you cry, but rock and roll songs never do. Um, and it, it ends up being all about George Jones's um, song, uh, He Stopped Loving Her Today, which I, which I call the saddest song of all time. Um, and it was just, it was both fun and kind of moving, but also I was making an argument about what it takes to, 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 to reach someone emotionally which I think is really important as people who are in the storytelling business, having an insight about what you need to do to reach people's heart is really, really crucial. Um, and it kind of, it has, doing that episode really kind of made me think a lot about the kind of stories I want to tell. It made me realize that I actually am more interested in reaching people's hearts than their heads. I, I do want to make people cry because I, I think when you cry, I've, I've disarmed you in a certain way and allowed you to open you up to new experiences and kind of new ideas. What is your process writing? What is your relationship with writing? I always like to have something in the back of my mind. And I also believe very strongly in um, iteration. I think you, there's no way you can ever get something right the first or even the second or even the third time. And I also believe very strongly that the best writing, the best writers are the most generous writers. So you should share your ideas. You should ask for advice. You should show people everything. You should be open to criticism. You should, all of that is what makes you good. And that defensiveness and pri keeping things private is the way you go stale and produce me mediocre work. And so I try to be as open as possible. Um, and uh, that I think has served me, has served me well. His six-part podcast series, and I'm telling you, everything he does is great. It debuted last week, uh, Legacy of Speed. So this news might be a little bit dated, but I thought that uh, at the time that I wanted to discuss with you as a broader view on all the stuff happening in America as we reach a crisis point, as it seems like we're more divided than we've ever been, I wanted to play for you some sound from Washington Commander's uh, defensive coordinator. I actually don't know what the title of... Uh, Jack Del Rio is, but Whittingham, can you please find for me the sound real quick to play for Malcolm Gladwell of Jack Del Rio from last week? I don't remember. I, I don't know whether he's a linebacker's coach or whatever, but I want to get with Malcolm Gladwell on the subject of the in insurrection, how it is politically we can be viewing this so weirdly different as uh, not necessarily a threat to democracy, but just a dust-up in the words of a one football caveman. I'm just expressing myself. And uh, I think we all as Americans have the right to express ourselves, especially if you're being respectful. I'm being respectful. I just asked a simple question, really, did I, it, let's get right down to it. What did I ask? A simple question. Why are we not looking into those things? If we're gonna talk about it, why are we not looking into those things? Because it's kind of hard for me to say, I can realistically look at it. I see the images on TV. 
people's livelihoods are being destroyed, businesses are being burned down, no problem. And then we have a dust up at the Capitol. Well, there's no, nothing burned down. And we're not going to talk about We're going to make that a major deal. I just think it's got two standards. Five people died at the Capitol. Uh, Malcolm, your thoughts there? Well, <laughs> I mean, Jack Del Rio is not being hired for his political acumen. Um, and you, you know, you kind of you ask him that kind of question, you have to expect to get that answer. Um, and football is not the most progressive of environments. Um, you know, so am I surprised? Not terribly. Um, do I think Jack Del Rio should be fired? No. Uh, I think we should roll our eyes when he opens his mouth, maybe as best response. It, the thing that's amazing to me is he's he's working for Dan Snyder and a team based in Washington, D.C. Is he completely clueless about the environment? His boss is already in deep trouble and he's in one of the most liberal parts of the country. Like, Jack, like, keep your like, keep your mouth shut. Like, you're a public figure. I'm more sort of amazed at how tone deaf he is than anything else. I'm not, you know, his opinions aren't terribly novel. Lots of people have that opinion. But like, dude, you, I don't know, what's he, what is he making a million dollars a year? He's probably making a million dollars a year. You make a lot of money to coach football. Just just like tread carefully. And Dan does Dan Snyder does not need another controversy. I mean, he's like, it's it's unbelievable. But um, if I was, is this like, has anyone been more over his head as an NFL owner than Dan Snyder? I mean, he can't, even when he's in trouble, he's bringing in these kind of doofuses to coach for him. It's like, it's just phenomenal. You actually took out, you seized on the detail I wasn't expecting there because you made it about Jack Del Rio. And the only reason I asked you about it is how can we arrive in a place in America where there are such disparate facts and people look at things so differently that an insurrection or something that is an attack of the Capitol that I never saw thought I'd see in my country, in my lifetime, as someone who loves freedom and democracy, I, and to, to have it referred to as a dust-up, to have it not be an unpopular opinion, to have it mm -hmm. be, like, I can yell about the opinion all I want, but you say, well, plenty of people believe that. Explain to me what I'm missing about America, that people can look at that event so differently when we're all looking at the same event. Yeah, all I would say is it's not new. I often tell the story, when my parents got married, my mom is black, my dad's white, there was a law in the United States, in various, various states, that said a marriage between a black person and a white person was illegal. So that is within my mother and father's lifetime, right? Now, is that worse than, is that idea that we should enshrine in law, the idea that only certain kinds of people can marry each other? That's, so that was in place till, until the early 1960s, right? So there have been in American life, um, noxious ideas floating around and held by a bunch of people for a very, very long time. Um, so in that sense, if you take the long view, you're like, well, the difference now maybe is we give these people a microphone we didn't, and we didn't hear from them in the past. Um, I'm, I, I'm more inclined simply to weigh the popularity of these comments and say, well, do most Americans believe that what happened on January 6th was a very serious event? I suspect that most do, and I'm content with that. If I thought that the majority of Americans thought it was a dust-up, I would move back home to Canada.
What do you make of the idea that in polling on just about any subject, we can get 20 or 30 percent of Americans to take the other side on just about anything? When it comes to basic numbers, you're mentioning the idea of majorities. You're saying this is not a majority thought in this country, but more and more, even as Trump loses a landslide election, I do believe this is no longer a fringe thought. This is no longer mere extremism. It's closer to the mainstream than I'd like to ever believe this country was about. I'm, you're running up against my perennial optimism here. Um, I maybe It's a crazy moment, and I feel like lots of people hold positions that, or state positions that they don't seriously hold. I have to believe that, Dan, otherwise, how do we go on if we think that the the entire country is in the grip of these kinds of of terrible delusions? Um, you know, I think most people are sensible. When I think about, I have a lot of encounters, and I'm sure you do too, as someone who's recognizable. I have a lot of random encounters in the world with people, and you know, I'm sitting in an airplane, and there's a guy next to me, and we start talking. And I, you can have, I find, I can have a interesting intelligent, thoughtful conversation with nearly everyone. And I am quite sure that many of the people that I'm talking to hold positions that I would find obnoxious and vice versa. But there's a whole other area where we have a lot of common ground. And I think we sometimes we forget how much common ground we all have. Um, and maybe it's time for us just to talk about the stuff we have in common more and the stuff we don't have in common less. Legacy of Speed. It launched last week. I urge you to check out his six-part podcast series. Anything else, Malcolm, that we did not cover here that uh, you wanted to get to? I do appreciate that you brought the subject matter again and again back to this. As I said, I appreciate when you get obsessed with something. It is good for all of us when you get obsessed. Now, this has been so much fun, Dan, as always. Uh, Malcolm, thank you, sir. Good talking to you. Anything else you want us to know? Anything else the audience needs to know about Legacy uh, of Speed that we did not cover that you want to impress upon the people? Just that it's, an, it's a great yarn and you will learn things you did not know about what a tumultuous time the late 60s were. And how little we've changed, right? Because, it, how, it, I mean, and, my guess is that pl plenty of the terrain you're covering is like, how are we still here? It's, we repeat it every year. And I, I just, I really can't imagine, Malcolm, yeah. Bill Russell and Jim Brown as they, you know, limp toward mortality, immortality, the end of life here. How do you imagine they experience what's happening in sports in America right now? I know it's got to it has to it has to be a, a, a depressing moment. Uh, but your optimism is welcome here. Always, sir. Thank you, Malcolm. OK, Dan. Thanks so much. A lot has changed over the years. But, you know, one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can... A beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.